Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. If we look at the four great anxieties that were, I think, originally listed by Anna Freud, or maybe it was Melanie Klein, one of those early important figures in 20th century psychology. One is the anxiety of annihilation, the fear of being killed uh, or grievously physiologically harmed. One is the fear of being separated from the loved. One is the fear of decompensation. I kind of love this one. That's the fear that we're going to lose our shit and not be able to put the pieces back together. Uh, The fear of just literally falling apart. And the last one is the fear of social rejection, which by far and away uh, is the most common anxiety in adult life. Basically, it's the fear that something in me that is innate to me, if other people see it, will lead to rejection, uh, will be seen as unacceptable, will be evaluated as not good enough. So the question might be, why do we care so much what others people think about us? And the answer is that it sucks to be rejected. Brains evolved to experience threats to our social connection, activating the same emotional pain circuits that we experience when we have physical pain, when we are literally attacked by someone. Uh, If you want to look up the work of two great um, neuropsychologists, uh, Matthew Lieberman, Naomi Eisenberger, who spent their careers studying social pain, they've shown that the entire brain organized itself uh, to essentially not only protect ourselves from physical danger, but to protect ourselves from social rejection to maintain robust social bonds. Um, We're all born with an attachment system, uh, which is there to maintain proximity with people who take care of us because we're all born prematurely. We cannot survive on our own. So the infant from the very, literally from birth, the first system that's fully working is a system that can make out faces and can monitor if people are looking at us, paying attention, if we are being touched or held enough. And in the absence of care or connection, it activates what could be best described as an alarm system in the brain. Uh, The regions are by now very well known, the right and the right amygdala, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, the somatosensory, and even other, uh, the right orbital frontal are all involved in this sort of alarm system that creates distress when we do not feel we are important to others. As one um, uh, attachment uh, theorist calls it, the feel we matter in the mind of someone else's mind, that we matter in someone else's mind. That's what, that's the core fundamental drive, more even profound than the drive to eat and, and uh, consume liquids. Studies show that uh, an infant deprived of 
secure attachment uh, is not only suffers extreme emotional distress very quickly, but even experiences extreme physiological distress. Infants who are not touched, cared for, paid attention to, die very, very early on. And, uh, and there's actually been, unfortunately, studies that have shown this in countries where, for some reason, they decided to, um, uh, in some orphanages, they literally didn't touch or pay attention to the children. Um, so, uh, when we don't get it, our seen or when we feel rejected by people around us, it creates what's called biological rudeness and it activates not just the right amygdala goes off along with the somatosensory and then that activates the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex which lowers your endorphins so your body feels more painful and then it switches on the HPA axis which raises level of cortisol so suddenly you're now feeding off of uh, stress hormones and it induces states of hypervigilance and uh, it induces basically threat states where we monitor the world, we don't feel safe, we lose appetite, we don't sleep, we, uh, we literally, the stomach clenches, sending all the blood away, because when we are alone in our historical evolutionary past, it meant that we were really, could die at any moment, and so the stomach, by clenching, would staunch the blood and send it to the limbs to protect ourselves. And it's physiologically a really disastrous state. Um, in, a, in essence, it creates a state of anxiety. So it should be noted, and I think it's probably pretty clear if I haven't said it, but that uh, those of us with insecure attachment, roughly 50% of the population, um, uh, are far more subject to social anxiety. A great book by a famous neuropsychologist uh, who runs, the, I think, the department at the University of Kansas, Omri Gilead, wrote a book called Adult Attachment. And he goes over all the clinical studies and shows conclusively all the different maladies associated with insecure attachment. One of the most fundamental is uh, social anxiety and anxiety disorders. Now, it should be noted that there's a reason we have social rejection, which is uh, social anxiety, which is to a degree in everyone, which is that it is there to protect us from acting out on impulses that are anti-tribal and could really damage our relationship with the clans that for the bulk of human history, we lived in small clans, uh, hunter-gatherer collectives. And if we were ousted from them, we would die. So it's a good thing that we all have, to a degree, a certain you know, emotional distress system that activates when we think people are gonna reject us, when we feel people are judging us negatively or harshly, when we feel there's, we are being negatively evaluated or assessed by others. However, what happens with, um, 
social anxiety and all forms of excessive years of social rejection is that one little area in the amygdala, the BLA, the basolateral amygdala, becomes overactivated and learns um, too many situations where it just believes rejection could happen. Not that it actually is happening, not that it's certain to happen, but that there's some remote possibility that I might be rejected and it will switch on the entire system. It switches on the system because something that we're doing reminds us of a situation in the past where we actually were rejected and the BLA learns, okay, I'm just gonna assume it's gonna happen again. Because obviously, I guess, in our evolutionary, uh, the first 190,000 years of our species, in hunter-gatherer collectives, if people rejected us once, they were probably gonna continually do it. So the BLA simply evolved to assume, okay, once when I was in third grade and a teacher asked me to show my finger painting and other kids laughed at me, that means forevermore, if I'm in a situation where I have to be creative or express myself or feel evaluated by others, I might as well assume that I'm going to be humiliated, embarrassed, and I might as well switch on that social, that distress system. So uh, essentially a system that should only work when rejection is all but in, uh, inevitable now works simply on the possibility that in this situation once in my life I it, I was I felt embarrassed or humiliated and so from now on until I have enough positive experiences I'm just gonna my this system of the brain just plays it safe and just activates distress pain shaking anxiety it activates you know the rapid heartbeat the dizziness the the stomach trouble, the diarrhea, hopefully not sweating, out of body sensations, the, all, the, all the physiological experiences that let us know that we're having an anxiety or panic attack and so forth. Um, eventually, any situation where we are at the center of attention where there's a possibility that people might uh, view us as less than skilled, any situation where we have to display skills where we're not fully, completely proficient can activate that system. Novel situations where we're in front of strangers uh, can activate that situation. So you meet somebody, you uh, have a good relationship, they invite you to see their parents, and you might experience anxiety of rejection. You go to a work gathering and you know that you're gonna be introduced to a whole bunch of people. You might experience a, a, an uptake of your sympathetic nervous system. Your body might get tight. You might start breathing faster. You might find it difficult to relax. You might no longer be able to settle and be creative and to just uh, feel comfortable in your own skin. Uh, if you uh, go to a large social gathering where you just don't know a lot of people and so forth, the more novel, the stranger, the situation, the more we don't know people, the more that there seems to be something on the line uh, can activate the system. So when we have our 
social rejection system, the anxiety system switched on. Uh, the, essentially, it's a sympathetic nervous system. People develop these uh, ways to essentially switch it off at all costs. And as the Buddha noted in the Four Noble Truths, that's where shit really gets bad. Uh, it's not so much the immediate anxiety or emotional pain that is challenging. It's the way we respond, the way we react to when pain or anxiety or fear is present or anger that actually amplifies it and then makes the experience far, far worse. So what are the unsuccessful strategies that people use or employ to lessen or deactivate their uh, distress systems? Well, the most unsuccessful is familiar to all of us in one degree or another. It's called avoidance coping. And essentially, when people have had an emotional wound uh, in any event in their life, they will avoid it in the future. They will avoid the people, the places. So for example, if you've ever in your life felt embarrassed uh, when you had to speak in public, then in the aftermath, after feeling the embarrassment and the plummeting of self-esteem and the, the sense of the stories we had on of not being uh, of not being as capable of speaking in public as others and so forth, then the uh, next impulse we might experience is to avoid speaking in public for the foreseeable future. If somebody has been hurt in a romantic relationship, they might want to spend an extended period of the time not uh, connecting, meeting new people. If somebody's fallen off a bike, they won't get back on the bike because they have this initial anxiety and they feel the best way is to wait a while because surely if I wait a while, the anxiety will go away. It's the exact opposite. The BLA has the unfortunate tendency of actually activating even more distress the more we avoid someone or avoid things associated with someone or some situation and so forth. So for example, you work at a job for a year and then suddenly out of the blue, you are fired for no good reason. And then for uh, a couple of weeks after that, you or months afterwards, you don't go anywhere near the same neighborhood, the same part of town, because it would remind you of the job and the and the event and the hope is that okay surely that anxiety or distress will pass and after a while I'll be able to go back to that neighborhood or that the place where that person used to hang out etc and that it will pass it doesn't it actually gets worse the BLA anything we avoid links that um, that what we could call signifier or that visual cue with distress. And the more we avoid it, the more stress and fear activations, the BLA will activate. So essentially avoidance uh, accomplishes exactly the opposite of what we want. Now, of course, we won't, don't want to dive back into a situation that caused us emotional harm. The key is to go back incrementally, very slowly, in a safe way, with 
just incrementally re-exposing oneself to a situation that in the past we felt hurt, wounded, or embarrassed. The second strategy that doesn't work is masking anxiety. Pretending like we're confident when we're not. Pretending that we're having a good time when we're secretly not. Pretending that we're comfortable when we're feeling antsy or we're not. That has been studied by a wonderful uh, clinical psychologist, Bruce Hood, who shows that it fails spectacularly and that acting as if actually um, what it creates is what's known as cognitive overload. The more we try to pretend that we're feeling or experiencing emotional states that we're not, you actually set up all these different subroutines in the brain. For example, suppose that secretly right now I was uncomfortable talking in public and I wanted, however, you to think that I was comfortable. So what would I have to do to pull that off? One, I would have to set up a subroutine in my right hemisphere that would observe my body and see if any visual cues that you could part see uh, indicating my nervousness was visible. Two, I would have to scan your faces to see if any of you picked up on my nervousness. Three, I would still at the same time have to talk and give, and give a speech and so forth on some you know, uh, topic or another. So what I've just developed is cognitive overload, and the more we have to pay attention to at any given time, the more stress we experience because it actually uses the very little, very scarce resources of cognitive processes we have in the left hemisphere. So it actually doesn't work, and Hood's work showed that if you want to actually lessen anxiety in any situation, as we'll talk about in a moment, Disclose it. Just simply say, I'm uncomfortable doing this. And in studies, the moment people do that, the skin valence studies show that they immediately become significantly relaxed and more comfortable simply by acknowledging the fact that they aren't comfortable. Three, distractions. Uh, rather than avoiding uh, overwhelm by looking at our phone when we're at a party, the most important tool is to put the phone away. Put anything that we could actually try to distract ourselves away from because once again, distracting like avoidance coping only makes the fear of interpersonal interactions scarier. For self-medicating, and this is something I like to feel that I'm, I was an expert in for uh, many years of my life until I got sober 25 years ago. Uh, alcohol uh, exogenously produces GABA, which is an anxiolytic. That means it reduces anxiety. So it's not surprising that in any stressful situation, the most common way to self-medicate is to have a drink. People use it in pretty much any situation where social rejection and the, uh, especially one of the, one of the key attributes of social distress when we are uncomfortable is that we start becoming extremely self-conscious. We use the ventral medial region of the brain. We start hyper uh, criticizing ourselves. We become very, very hyper aware of everything we're doing and the effect that it has on people around us. And so to essentially alleviate that distress, people consume alcohol. 
The problem with alcohol, as it is with all exogenous GABA systems, including, including benzodiazepines, is that you very quickly need more and more and more to get the same, if not dwindling, results. Alcohol is notoriously a substance, like all GABA-inducing uh, substances, that the brain habituates to very, very quickly. So the amount of anxiolytic effect that a couple of drinks produces, if you need it every time you're in a social situation, well, soon it'll grow to three, four, six, eight, and so forth. And also, you'll get less and less results. And there's a secondary problem. While you're throwing all that GABA into your system, GABA actually reduces inhibition. It's disinhibiting. What that means is we'll say something that actually will damage our social bonds eventually and will lead to the very thing we're the most scared of, social rejection. So the very cure we're looking for actually turns into the very problem that makes life worse. And then finally, the, the fifth way that people try to alleviate social anxiety, very familiar to us all, eating. Eating activates, raises dopamine levels. It creates feelings uh, reminiscent of the times in life where we were most loved and rewarded by our parents. And the problem with that is that dopamine is notoriously, vanishingly present synaptically. It goes away very quickly. And so we have to continue doing that to keep the dopamine levels high. And even then, eventually, the dopamine just dries out. It is, there's only so much of it to be secreted. We weren't meant to have as much dopamine present as we now seek constantly in our day-to-day lives. And eventually, the dopamine is replaced by cortisol, stress. So how do we reduce, how do we address and reduce uh, the fear or anticipation of social rejection? Well, one is through self-soothing, and a lot of these tools, a couple of these tools I'm going to be doing in the leading the meditation. Self-soothing is essentially creating states physiologically in your body that send messages up through both the C fibers and the vagus nerve up to the thalamus and send a message to your those core structures, your especially your right amygdala, and it says, "I'm safe." I'm not going to be rejected. This is a situation where I am secure and nothing bad is going to happen. Interestingly, if you try to do that with thinking, telling yourself, oh, there's no reason anybody here will reject me, I'm fine, that won't help because the right amygdala is a structure in the midbrain that has absolutely no comprehension of language whatsoever. So it's like you're talking to someone who doesn't speak a word of English, can't understand a thought that you think, but your right amygdala is significantly axonically connected to the insula in your body. So it actually checks your body for feedback and for uh, a sense of, oh, am I safe right now or am I not? So if you send the right messages, you can actually deactivate the distress system. It's worthwhile to challenge negative beliefs. 
generally when we are under some form of stress because the ventromedial act activates, the ventromedial is notorious for two kinds of thinking that always gets us in trouble. Thinking about ourselves and speculating. Speculating, it could be, you know, um, everybody here is clearly having a good time, but me. Well, of course, that speculation is, there's no way you can reach into people's brains and know if they are literally having a good time. You're simply looking by essentially physiological markers which are easy to get wrong. Uh, challenging neg negative self-beliefs are essentially whatever it is your brain is telling you when you're under any form of distress. Look for disconfirming evidence. Look for somebody in the room who's not having a good time. Look for somebody else who is uncomfortable. Look for someone who invalidates the hypothesis. This is a basic cognitive behavioral tool, but it actually works really well. Um, again, as I noted, disclose your affect state. It might be difficult, but I guarantee you it works, and I do this all the time. I, there's no, nothing in the world, thankfully I managed to skip them all, that I loathe more than weddings. <laughs> I, I, really, I literally spend, uh, I have developed really advanced tools of getting myself out of attending anybody's wedding. <laughs> but, uh, and those unfortunate few times where it's all, it's not even impossible to uh, get out of it and you're actually there. The first thing when people say is, you know, you wind up in these tables at eight, you don't know anybody else. And the question is, oh, how do you know the bride or the groom? And the, my first thing is, I don't know. I'm, I generally hate these things. I'm like, uh, I find this part of the whole thing really challenging. How do you feel about this? <laughs> and literally, I have met a lot of good friendships, even though I still hate weddings, by the way. But I've actually made some good friends by simply acknowledging the underlying affect state, because again, the need to perform or act as if actually creates cognitive overload and adds to the distress. Um, we noted, put the phone away, seek one-on-ones in social situations. When we are in a social group, one additional factor that switches on the social alarm system in the brain is the looking around at various different people's faces and trying to figure out what people are thinking about us or a group that activates a region called the fusiform gyrus directly connected again to the midbrain fear structures. What you want to do is focus on one person and connect with them. When I go to any social event, my first strategy is to find one person and hijack them. <laughs> just spend, and I just assume that people will see I'm there and that's enough. But I find all social gatherings much more fun if I just find one or two people at most and spend the entire gathering connecting with them. It actually builds better social bonds, it actually affords a connection, but it also gets us out of the hook of activating that 
that uh, constant scanning mechanism. Be realistic about our capabilities, and that means don't allow your guilt and shame system to switch on and tell you that, oh, it's my cousin's wedding, I should really spend the entire time there. If you're only capable of spending a couple of hours at a social situation after which you get tired and it makes you more liable to become stressed out, leave. Don't push yourself beyond your limits. And then lastly though, strategies that for me work the most efficiently is to learn how to develop a secure base, which means a feeling that we are essentially uh, worthy of uh, people's attention, kindness, care. And these are actually tools that the Buddha developed. There's actually a whole group of practices called the Ten Recollections. And if somebody wants in the aftermath, I'll go over all ten. But uh, just for the sake of tonight's practice, there's three tools that I find are really, really, well, four actually of the daily recollections that are really useful in developing a secure base and switching off the social anxiety system or the social rejection fear. These are reflecting on people that we've helped to develop a feeling of, of worthiness, a feeling of uh, pro-tribal status, reflecting on people or beings that really care about us. That's known as Deva Nusati and Santi Nusati, which is reflections on times in our life where we've been really secure, peaceful, happy, restful, and to cultivate those states somatically. So in tonight's meditation, I'm actually gonna lead us first through self-soothing techniques in the first half. And then in the second half, I'm gonna be leading us through some techniques that can create a feeling of a secure base that we could use before going into a social gathering. That's it for the, uh, I don't know what that is. Oh my, oh my goodness. Uh, and uh, that's it for tonight's talk. Thanks for listening, and now it's time to practice. And just allow yourself to find the most comfortable seated position. Never trust what anybody tells you is the right position to meditate. Just find for you what feels sustainable and it's different for every person so if you've ever heard or anybody else tells you there's a correct way to sit just don't believe them and if you don't believe me the great buddhist renunciates say the same thing so just find a position that's right for you generally you feel your way into it. You feel the top of your head, your shoulders, the sensations of your shoulders, the sensations of your sit bones where you contact the cushion and you just bring them in some kind of alignment that feels sustainable. And then 
gently lift your chin up a little bit like you're looking at the top of a tall building and the only reason why you do this is just to prevent the head from slouching and everybody agrees that's uh, essentially the one tendency we want to avoid we want to keep the head from slouching forward keep it nice and upright but other than that just allow your body to relax and in fact towards that end we're going to do a number of breaths as usual just to get started so take a nice full in-breath and squinch the muscles in the face clenching the facial muscles uh, activating the cranial nerves so clench the jaw pinch the nose furrow the brow and then a long out breath and just release all of the tension in the face and one way that we can really self-soothe pretty quickly is by inviting the eyes to settle ask them to just float in the eye sockets the when your eyes stop darting about behind the eyelids what happens is that the uh, the retinal nerves then send a message when we're stressed anxious the eyes dart about but when we're safe and relaxed the eyes settle so you can tell inform your midbrain that you are safe simply by encouraging and just spending a moment to relax the eyes and then let's take another full in breath lift the shoulders up and rotate them back to open up the chest and then drop the, sh the arms and just keep those shoulders back so that you open up your chest and that actually uh, sends an additional set of messages because when we're stressed anxious in a withdrawal state hypervigilant the arms clutch to the side of their body very often literally will cross our arms in front of our chest or just keep our arms really tight to our side and it deactivates the vagal break but when your chest is nice and open and relaxed then your heart stops beating as quickly it slows down respiration lowers your blood pressure and then for our third in breath we want to bring imagine you're bringing the air into your abdomen and just allow your belly to expand and then as you breathe out soften the belly as people when we are hypervigilant in chronic stress you can always see people breathing by the movement in their chest when people are really relaxed comfortable you actually will see that they do naturally the belly is far more 
articulate of the breath itself, the inhalation and exhalation. So we want to just help that state along by practicing abdominal breathing, which simply means just feel the movement of the stomach muscles as you breathe in and breathe out. And when you breathe out, just soften and release. And so we're going to just practice staying in this settled state. You can use awareness of the breath and just try to make the exhalations as long as possible. The longer the out-breath, the more you engage your relaxed system, the parasympathetic. Just try to make your out-breaths as long as possible, softening the belly with each out-breath. Keeping the eyes nice and settled, the chest nice and open. And then if you like, because very often the mind will generate content when our eyes are closed. So use the switching on some circuits that allows us to fantasize. And we're going to be using that, but we're going to be using it in a different way than we normally do. We're going to be using it to help us feel secure. So for our first practice, while we just keep this nice relaxing breath, just visualize a place a 
a setting where you feel really comfortable and safe. Whether it's a, a beach or a park or a certain room or just visualize a place where you can relax or a specific situation if you prefer in this practice the Buddha talks about reflecting on places or times where we feel peaceful and if something pulls your mind away from this image or recollection just bring it back keeping part of your awareness on the image part on the body, just keeping the exhalations long, the belly soft.
every time your mind drifts away, just feel good that you noticed it and then just return to the body first with a nice long exhalation, softening the belly, opening the chest. And then bringing back an image of a place that feels soothing and safe for a situation. Let's visualize now a person that you feel really safe with, somebody who, a being that really cares about you. This can be someone who is real or someone you just create an ideal figure. In the practice, Devanusati, the Buddha, talked even of visualizing an angelic figure. You just want to create the feeling of what it's like to be with somebody who really approves, cares, 
likes, who's interested in us. Now for our third visualization. Bring to mind an image that exemplifies the positive effect we have with other people. Buddha called this our sila and our kaga. Something that we've done to benefit others. Something that we've done of service, kindness. If nothing comes immediately to mind, just visualize something that you would like to do to help others. It's really important to activate the pro-tribal circuits just to visualize someone looking at you with gratitude for your efforts, whether it's someone you really have helped or someone that you would like to help. Just visualize them looking at you with a sense of appreciation, recognition, gratitude.
while you hold this image in your mind, take one hand, if you will, and place it on your heart center, right in the middle of your chest. What we're doing is stimulating the vagal nerve. And just feel the warmth of your hand on your heart center. And just breathe into that warmth. let the person or the image of the being that you've helped slowly switch to your image the way you would look today in the mirror and just hold an image of yourself while you feel that sense of warmth in your chest Creating the somatic state of care, worthiness, and just look at your image in your mind with tenderness, appreciation. while linking it with this feeling of confidence. And then when you're ready, you can just allow your hand to lower back into your lap. And in a moment, you'll hear the sound of the bell. And when you hear it, just take your time. No rush. Slowly open your eyes and just look at the ground in front of you. And see if you can, when sight is added to awareness, see if you can... Do it in such a way that you don't push awareness of your body and the way you feel internally. Don't let sight push body awareness out of mind. A mindful, mindfulness is not just something we do on the cushion. It's something we do whenever we just are aware of how we feel. When we're aware of how we feel, not only do we make smarter choices, we live more authentic lives. 